you're listening to a Big MX Radio Podcast. Brought to you by Arma Energy. Presented by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Bill's Pipes, Just One Helmets, X-Brand Goggles, Shades of Grey Custom Helmet Painting, Rhino Power Sports Supplements, Roy Borton Suspension, Watts Perfections, and Golden Tire. Simply the best, motocross and supercross news from around the globe. And now, here's your host, Brad Gephardt. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Show, brought to you by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Just One Helmets, X-Brand Goggles, and Shades of Grey Custom Helmet Painting. I am your host, as usual, Brad Gephardt, but with me on the line, we've got freelance photographer and journalist, none other than Steve Cox. Steve, how's it going? Ah, it's good out here. It's nice. It's about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, nice little breeze rolling through. Sweet. It's uh, Rocky Mountain High, Colorado, correct? <laughs> no, California. Oh, you're in California right now. Perfect. Uh, yeah. Is that where you, you live uh, full-time? Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, it's uh, right down there in SoCal. Um, how long have you called that home? Since I was born. I was born in Santa Ana, California, and I uh, lived in Chino, where I live now. I've lived here since I was about three months old. Oh, fair enough. My mistake. Uh, I figured since you were a diehard Broncos fan that uh, that's where you <laughs> called home. But nevertheless, uh, glad no, to I'm have a Broncos fan because of the uh, when I was like seven years old, um, that's when they drafted John Elway, and I was just a huge John okay. Elway fan. So, and then after however many years that was, it seemed kind of seemed like I couldn't really just be like you know later. You know, it's hard to just bail out on your team. So. That's, that's, Very true, and they did have those back-to-back uh, Super Bowls to uh, yeah, keep, you, keep you going strong. It's been a it's been a longer time since my favorite team had a championship, and uh, uh, but still faithful to them, even though they uh, like to shake up the team every once in a while. Yeah, it's a, that's how it's supposed to be. Absolutely, uh, and of course, um, but the Broncos didn't actually draft uh, Elway. He was drafted by the Colts. Yeah, by the Colts, and then uh, he refused to play. He said he'd go play for the for the Yankees or whatever in baseball. He's going to be baseball. So they traded him away. Yeah. They traded him away. That's excellent. Now, uh, you are a freelance journalist and photographer. Uh, I got to ask someone who is seeing the sport, uh, from an objective point of view, uh, both sides of the lens, you've been a racer. Um, how did Steve Cox get introduced to motocross? Um, and, and, and how did you develop a love for it? Uh, to the point where you'll, you'll go to these races, basically, uh, round the the calendar, dedicating yourself to covering the sports you love so much. Well, uh, I don't really feel like, I don't like people that much. Mm. Like in general public, I mean, like, if I go to the mall, I don't really like the people at the mall. Like they bother me. It feels like I feel like they value the wrong things a lot of the time. You yeah, know, I, like shopper. Oh yeah, definitely. But I'm just saying, like the type of people that that are in the general public. Um, a lot of the time, I don't like them all that much. Like I don't feel like I belong with them. Um, but motocross people, I know I belong with those people because I've been, you know, my dad was a motocrosser and I, I started when I was really little and um, raced, you know, my whole, you know, until I was in my late teens and whatever in Southern California here. And, and uh, we're just wild differently, I think, than 
than uh, the rest of the world tends to be. So um, I get along with those people. So, you know, you were asking about wanting to go to the races and stuff. I mean, going to the races when they're far away, especially, but like getting there and getting home is terrible. But being at the races feels like home, you know, it, you know, it's the right, it's people you get along with, you know, you know who they are, they know who you are, you will understand them from a, you know, a a core perspective, you know, like down in the middle, you're the same as they are, you know, and uh, so that's what makes that, I think, enjoyable more than anything is just being around like-minded and, and people who are driven the same way that you are, you know, that's, that's what makes it fun to me. I totally agree. Uh, there's a kinship the, between motocross participants, fans, and otherwise that uh, uh, there's an unspoken bond, an unspoken agreement of respect between uh, both competitors, fans, and otherwise. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't that... mean that we like everybody no, at the track for sure or anything. Not. You know, certainly not. But but uh, you know, it's a if I go to the mall, I don't like almost anybody there. You know, so at the races. Even if it's fifty-fifty, and I'm sure it's a lot higher than that. Like I'm sure that there are, you know, there aren't that many people that that I don't get along with. But um, even if it was fifty-fifty, that's a way higher percentage <laughs> than in the general world around you. Know? <laughs> yeah, well, there's something to be said for uh, feeling at home, and uh, yeah, like I've, I for for myself, uh, things feel a little bit missing when you're not at the track. And of course, up here in Canada, we got about six months where uh, we don't get to convene. Uh, on the dirt, so um, yeah, it's pretty safe to say that uh, motocross is is a is a passion over pr- paycheck sort of thing. And uh, I got to imagine that uh, as a youngster, um, you, you you'd spend a lot of uh, your own personal money and hopefully get some from help from your parents to help uh, brew this passion for the sport. Yeah, I didn't spend any of my own money. I didn't oh, have it either. <laughs> <laughs> no, my my parents paid for everything until they, you know, until they could, you know. That was yeah. that was really um, you know, it was uh, it was a family thing. Um and and honestly, once you get up into like the, you know, intermediate and then pro, you know, local pro ranks or whatever, uh, it's uh you know, and I was a teenager too. That's the other thing is like I was going to high school and stuff, you know, so it's not like yeah. a you don't have time to go make money outside of the sport. You know, not really. I worked summers, you know, during the time, but, but I pretty much just spent that money on like, you know, Sega Genesis and shit like that. <laughs> yeah. Try, trying yeah. to hang out with girls and stuff like that. Buying bubble gum, stuff like that. Nah, I didn't hang out with girls that much. No. Girls scared, girls, girls scared me a lot when I was, when I was a little, little boy, a little tight. No, st- they still scare me now. <laughs> Yeah, certain ones, certainly. Wait, <laughs> wait till you're married, man. It's a that'll scare you. No kidding. Uh, it's, it's it's not even a, a no joke that my dad's got to keep all of his motorcycles hidden away in a storage locker, and I hope <laughs> I don't have to get myself in the same situation one day. But um, uh, how did you make the transition from like just from obviously you were racing, you're a fan of the sport to then covering it and, and like, like, like working your way into journalism. Like, uh, I understand you were doing some, a sales position and, uh, just happened to call up the guys from cycle news. Yeah. Well, uh, it kind of like, I didn't, I don't have any real college education or anything. I, I went to the fire Academy and graduated that cause my plan was I was going to be a firefighter. Uh, and then I got the job at cycle news and I sort of just scrapped the, the, uh, firefighting thing because it was just you know it's right in my wheelhouse and 
all that. But basically, the way that went down, the um, a few years away from racing and stuff, I had called Cycle News and just on a whim and asked them if they had any job openings. And they told me they had a job opening in sales and a job opening in editorial. And I had read Cycle News, you know, since I was a little kid. And so I was like, okay, well, um, I was in sales at the time and I hated it. So I was like, well, I'll do editorial. So they put me through to that. And I went in and took a test to be a proofreader and did really well, I guess. And they hired me. And then, and that was mainly because my mom was an English major in college and she was just a complete nut about grammar and spelling and, you know, proper sentence structure and stuff like that. Even just speaking with my friends, she would walk in the room and correct me and, or, or tell me to correct myself when I used slang that she didn't think was appropriate or anything like that. So, um, you know, it just kind of got drilled into me, um, from an early age. So that, that kind of just worked out. And then, uh, yeah, it was probably a year. I was probably working there a year before they even knew that I rode motorcycles, like that I knew how. They they had they all decided they were going to go out riding out to, um, I think it was Elsinore at the time, Elsinore Raceway. And uh, they're like, oh, we're going to take a day off on Wednesday and we're going to go riding. I was kind of like, well, can I come? And one of the guys, pretty funny, because one of the guys was like, well, you can't just get on a dirt bike and ride it. Like, it's, you know, it's pretty <laughs> difficult. So I had to pull out, and I did. I grabbed old cycle news where I was actually featured story in some of the local events stuff, you know, winning um, novice and intermediate and, 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 you know, showing results anyway in the pro class yeah. in cycle news and, and uh, showed it to him. And I'm like, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, <laughs> that's me. Yeah. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. Then yeah, I guess you could come. And then I went yeah, out you're there. More than, more than yeah. welcome to come uh, smoke us on the local track. Um, well, and that's what you... that's what happened. I I I went out there. It was it had been four years since I'd ridden, but I was already faster than all of them. Like I was faster than everybody in, <laughs> on staff. And so they're like, oh boy. <laughs> and this is one of those things. Yeah. So so how old would you have been at this time? Uh what what kind of era are we talking? Uh like was like, two thousand one, so I would have been okay. like uh twenty two, twenty three years old. So did you always uh, you still have one of your bikes that you had raced back in the no, day or were you boring no. a bike? No, I was I was super fat, way out of shape, and uh just had been sitting on my ass mostly for the last you know, for the three or maybe four years, I guess it was between when I had raced and not raced, uh, and and then when I rode that first time when I was at Cyclones, and so it'd been four years, and I just sat around. So I I, I literally think at the time I weighed like two hundred and seventy pounds or something like that. Holy! And, and yeah, I was like really for fat. Those, obviously, this is a radio thing, so they can't see. You're uh, you're a pretty slim guy now. Like you're uh, maybe one seventy now. No, no, not nearly. No, I'm probably two thirty. But okay. I, co- I, I, no, I carry it pretty well. But I, yeah, I you know, when I, the, the thing is, is when I was racing, because I'm about six foot tall, a little mm-hmm. bit over six foot tall. And when I was racing, when I was in really good shape, like really trim shape, I was still like 190, 195. You know, like I, I was, I was not a small guy. So, you know, I'm, I'm around 230 now, and, and I'm certainly not in the kind of shape that I wish I was. But, um, you know, I, I don't look 230. I don't think I, you know. I'm not a typical fat guy that way that I look a certain way, but, 
But yeah, no, but I was incredibly fat back then. Like I still, <laughs> I was, I mean, 270 is really fat regardless. And, um, you know, I was like bottoming out the forks. They put me on this YZ 426 and I'd never ridden a four stroke. Nice. Because like, you know, my whole racing career is two strokes. And, um, and so they put me on this 426 and like I, I full on blew the fork seals out of it and stuff. But when I was out there riding, but I was still faster than they were. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that's that's really cool and like uh yeah. so yeah this is kind of a um a, a turning point you're like there's there's four strokes are coming in like uh you're you guys are you're like you're editing a lot of uh well-known uh journalists uh who who are some of the guys that you really had to crack down on uh, as far as uh um proofreading their stuff like who is an absolute nightmare as far as grammar and punctuation Oh man. Uh, well, see, so as a proofreader, there's a couple of things to know about that. As a proofreader, you get the stories after the editor has already edited them. So, okay. so you're not you're not taking a direct um, copy that was turned in from you know whoever, and then proofing it. Um, but, but the more, you know, I would assume, and, and I've, you know, since figured out that the more that they, um, you know, the, the, the worse it is, if, if that's the right word, worse, um, the worse it is to start with, the more there is for the proofreader to find and correct later too. Okay. Yeah. You know, cause like, you know, the editor is going to find X amount of things or whatever, you know, or whatever percentage of things they'll find. And then you, yeah. you know you want to catch the rest. So you're, you're like the last line of defense. Um, so yeah, was there that, a time that, where you, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying with that being said, like, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of, uh, like there were certainly some that were worse than others, but, um, it was hard to make the call. But later on as a, as an editor, there were definitely some people that I, I absolutely dreaded, their copy coming in and, and some people that I knew was going to be perfectly fine, you know, and I talked about this with Jason Wygant when I see him and, you know, cause we reminisce every now and then, but back in the day when I was at Cyclonist, he would do the copy from GNCC races as part of racer productions and stuff with the uh, racer X and all that. Um, so he would write the copy and turn it in from, from these GNCCs. And that's how I got to know him was through the GNCC coverage and, his was always great, like seriously, really, you know, the best copy that I would get in any given week was always Jason Wygant's, you know, so, you know, many years after that, when, when Racer X was looking for a new editor or something like that, um, you know, he, I couldn't believe that they didn't pick him the first time that that happened, you know, like that, to me, I was just like, wow, you know, how do you not, how do you not pick this guy? And, and that's where like, you know, weird stuff about the industry comes into it because I think certain people come into the industry and, and if you work at a certain company for so long or whatever, I think what may have happened in Jason Wygant's case, for example, would be that he was just this dumb kid who showed up and wanted a job. You know, his, mm-hmm. his story is really funny and how, how he got his job there. But I think over the course of time, you know, he matured into a solid journalist, a very solid journalist, but uh, you know, I, I honestly wonder if at least for a while, they obviously know now, but I, I think that they, I wonder if they had any idea what they had 
in him because a lot of the people, when, when you enter a situation like that, they see you as the same dumb kid that showed up, you know, and you never, you know, you don't get an opportunity to sort of change your, how you, how they view you. How they perceive you. Know, you yeah, design. yeah, yeah. It's tough to shake that. Yeah, yeah. So he was a great, but he was always great, um, like really perfect. And then there was like, from the GPs, I would get stuff from Jeff Meyer, and it was terrible. Like it was, <laughs> it, I literally, you know, it's one of those things where you literally had to rewrite the story. You had to look at what he wrote and then write it yourself because there's nothing about the sentences are backward. Instead of saying so-and-so got the whole shot, it would be like the whole shot went to so-and-so, you know, and, and, and it sounds stupid, yeah. but when you're, when you're dealing with however much space you get on a page, um, you know, you got to be concise and, and there's no, there's not a lot of room for, uh, you know, trying to be fancy with, with how you phrase things. And, but it seemed like every single sentence he had was backward and, you know, overly wordy and, and, uh, it was just, it was really bad. <laughs> so, so that's probably my best and my worst was so Jeff Meyer was my worst and my best was why again. So how did you develop your own uh, writing style and your own chops and cern as far as uh, developing your talents with uh, the language and, and how to get your point across in like a concise manner to uh, cover the sport? I honestly don't know. Um, I, I, I wonder, like, I, I, I think it's a dangerous thing to use the word talent because, I, you know, it implies, um, you know, something special or whatever and i don't i don't honestly think i'm special in any way like that but but uh i never had formal training and i used to think you know that everybody's brain sort of worked like mine so i was always kind of astounded when people couldn't write because to me i just take the words that are in my head and then i put them on the page and then that's fine yeah. <laughs> it's kind of just how it works it's just an open flow from my brain to my fingers and my fingers to the screen because I took typing in high school, which was purely just to get chicks because I knew there'd be chicks in the class. I had no idea that it would actually work out for anything in my life. Um, but, uh, so, you know, that was, I mean, I just could, I just could write. The first time I wrote anything for cycle news, it was a column. Um, and it was pretty critical of my dad actually, because, uh, he was kind of a really terrible mini dad type of a person. Um, you know, when I was growing up and, and, uh, so some stuff had happened like at the world mini or something like that back in the day, it might've been, it might've probably involved, it probably did involve Tony Alessi because I've known Tony and since before his kids were born and, um, and I think it did involve something going on at one of the amateur nationals. And so I wrote a column about like, you know, how terrible it is to be a child um, with, uh, you know, one of these ultra competitive psycho dads, you know, that, that, uh, wanted you to win more than you wanted to win, you know? And, uh, so I wrote that column and then everybody just loved it at cycle news. I got praise everywhere, all kinds of letters coming in and all this stuff. And, and, you know, to me, it was just putting thoughts through my hands. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a technique. I don't know what I did. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, like the long, the long, or the short answer to that is that I don't really know where it came from. Um, but I've always just been able to put what's in my head into words for whatever reason. Like it's just something I've always been able to do. So, so you're saying it's natural talent. 100%. I can't explain it. I'm just the best. 
No, I don't think I'm the best by <laughs> any means. Kidding. But but what I am is what I am, and and uh, and you know, I I would say that if if anything, it might be a mark against me because it's um, because it's not a learned skill. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to how to change it either, or get so better. The, yeah, or or if if you know, I don't even know what better necessarily is, but yeah. but to you know to change how I do it or my thought process or my methods would be impossible for me because I don't even know how I came up with this. So it, yeah, you know, in it, a way, you're, it's a you're writing is how your brain is wired. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it might be a handicap if anything. I don't think it's a. You know, that's what I mean. Like everything in life is. You know, there's give and take on everything. Every talent you have, there's there's a drawback. Every, you know, so it's it, you know, there's no arrogance behind it. It just it, that's just how my brain works, and so that's just how I go about it because <laughs> I have no other choice. <laughs> yeah, I, I can totally connect with that because uh, I'm very much the same way. Like I, the way I write is how my my it, it, how it sounds in my head, and whether like, yeah. whether or not that is everyone's favorite writing style is, is, uh, that's, that's never going to be the case, but nevertheless, it's just like, I, I think of how it's supposed to come. And usually it actually happens. I'm literally, it's coming up in my head as I'm writing. It's not like I think of the whole thing then I put it down. It's usually kind of almost at the same time. And, uh, I got to think for you, that almost kind of saves you some time, uh, as far as, uh, the, the writing form. Cause once you get in the flow, it's like setting fast lap times. Well, that's the, that's the, the, give and take of that is that, yeah, once you get in the flow, it goes quickly. Sometimes getting in the flow isn't that easy though. You know, like finding yeah. that, that groove and, and allowing her, you know, whatever, whatever tapping into whatever it is that you're tapping into sometimes isn't that, that easy. So, um, you know, again, I, I don't know this cause I'm not another person. I'm this person. But if I was another person who had like formal training and writing and stuff like that, maybe there are ways to, overcome those sorts of things you know but i don't know what those are because i just whatever it is i just put it from my brain onto the computer you know for sure now with uh you do some freelance work which i imagine you're dealing with some tight deadlines uh does it ever come down to you kind of working overnight on a piece or uh like pulling in some long hours at the keyboard yeah that's uh cycle news was a weekly or is is a weekly it's a weekly. So when I would go to a race on a Saturday um, or a Sunday in the nationals, because back when I was um, going to the nationals for cycle news, they were Sundays. Um, that copy had to be done complete and in the inbox of the editor who is putting it in, in, in you know, putting it together uh, by Monday morning, first thing. So, and then, you know, as the internet evolved as well, then you also, so you're writing two stories. You're writing one sort of basic story, recapping what had happened mm-hmm. um, for the web to get it up as quickly as you can. And then the more thorough report for the actual magazine would had to be done by Monday. So yeah, there's no, it's not some nights spent all night, you know, being up all night. It's every single one, every single time at, working for cycling is, that I had ever worked an event and covered an event, there is at least one, if not two nights staying up basically the entire night trying to get all that stuff done every single time. 
Now, since since you've moved on from uh, from Cycle News, now no, no longer doing the weekly publication, uh, how does that change your schedule as far as uh, uh, when your articles have to come out? Uh, how often that you're you're sitting down to write stuff, and uh, how do you come up with a topic? Well, um, I mean, shit, I've been doing this for this is my sixteenth year. Yeah. Well, yeah, it started two thousand, right? So. Um, it's, this would be the 16th year and the, um, you know honestly sometimes and this is this this is another thing but sometimes it's it's hard to know what you know and and that sounds stupid but I know a lot about motocross like a whole lot of nonsense about motocross like it's the most if it, if I didn't have a job in the industry it would be the most useless knowledge anybody could ever have, but I would probably still have it. Like I would still have that knowledge, you know? And uh, so it's just one of those things, but, but the, you know, sometimes it's having a conversation with a friend or a fellow journalist or even a fan. And I have, you know, like they mention something and I start talking about something that just kind of pops out of my head because it's knowledge that I've got. And then usually, honestly, I don't even catch that I'm doing it. Usually it's them. Man, you should write about that. And then I'm like, oh, shit, man. Yeah. Yeah, I should, actually. And, you know, so like, I make a note. They're like, <laughs> they're like, I should write about that. Because, you know, it's one of these things where you have, like, this depth of nonsense in your head. And, and uh, it's hard to determine what would be interesting to anybody else. To me, it's just what's in my head. It's not, you know, it just is. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the best way is just to get, people to tell you what you should write, you know, in conversation. And then outside of that, you know, I, I just like people to tell me, like, give me a subject, you know, tell me you want a story about this and I'll, I could do that, you know, and I'll write the story. Um, but the hard part for me is always coming up with an idea for a story because I never quite know. I, I second guess how much anybody else is going to be interested in whatever it is that I want to write about, you know? So I, I always prefer to have somebody else just give me something and let me run with it. Totally. And uh, as far as like the lengths of your work, uh, how many words are you usually dealing with, whether it be a feature or just a regular article? Features, it honestly varies on the magazine and on, on whether it's online or in print, because online you can make stuff as long as you want. But at the same time, online, people have the shortest attention spans ever, so you can't make it so long that people just, you know, fall asleep at their computer. Um, in a, in publications, I would say features are normally around 3,000 words. If there's an average, I would say it's around 3,000 words. Um, but I've done, like, I had a feature that I wrote in 2005 about Giuseppe Longo, the guy that runs the GPs, Yes, and all and how pissed off all the teams were over in Europe and all that stuff. And I interviewed, you know, all the legends of the sport in Europe. I interviewed Smets and Everts and uh, both of the Gaborses and, um, you know, on and on, just tons and tons of guys. Steve Dixon and a bunch of just a bunch of guys, um, mm-hmm. and got all of their sort of gripes and complaints about what what Longo was doing. And then I, I asked to speak to him as well you know, doing my proper journalism thing and he didn't want to talk about it. So, um, that just was what it was. But the story ended up being like 8,000 or 8,500 words or something. Um, 
mean, nobody ran it. I wrote it and I turned it into um, Racer X. I turned it into Trans World. I turned it into not at the same time. Like I waited yeah, till yeah. one turned it down and then turned it. In. <laughs> and I, I even turned it into the magazine in Europe or in England that I've been working for since the day I got fired from Cycling, which is Dirt Bike Rider. And they wouldn't touch it. They wouldn't touch it either. Nobody would touch the thing. So, and then, you know, it's one of these things where a few years later, it's always funny because, um, you know, it wasn't, I think it was maybe two years, maybe three years later. I don't know the timeline, but it was a couple of years later after that, that all of a sudden Giuseppe Longo was bidding to try and win the AMA Nationals um, and be the promoter for the AMA Nationals, bidding against MX Sports, which was Davey Coombs, which... Yeah was a guy that I had offered that story to and had he run it or even a trimmed down version of it, you know, more people in the USA would have known sort of what they were up against if they were to allow that guy to take over the nationals. Yeah. And, and so all it's the just one of those, that comes with that. Yeah. But one, one, you know, when, when Davey told me that he wouldn't run it, he said that quote unquote, I don't have a dog in that fight. And then, you know, a couple oh, years later he did. So it was one of those things where, you know, you know, I feel like if people just let the journalism be the journalism, um, you know, things would work out a little better sometimes, you know? Like they, yeah, well, I would, think that would, would happen really help Davey out, because especially when he didn't have a dog in the fight, it would have been, like, just him putting it out there. But once he was bidding, like, like it actually kind of looks like yeah, slander. Yeah, then he can't do it, yeah. Yeah, he can't do it. Yeah, at that, at that point, it looks like a conflict, and, and people would question the validity of the claims and the story and all that stuff. But prior to that, they wouldn't have had any reason to. Not at all. What are some of your proudest works that you've worked on? Like, what are some of the other ones you worked on? Like, yeah, I really knocked that one out of the park. Or uh, what were some of your greatest challenges uh, as a journalist? I honestly, um, I don't know. (laughs) Right on. That's cool. Almost two. Well, the thing is, is almost two years ago, I broke my femur um, out at a milestone. And um, I got knocked out for probably 15 or 20 minutes or something. And, uh, I think it scrambled my brain a little bit. Like not, not that it's not that I'm not able to do what I used to do. Cause I am, and I still have the knowledge I used to have, but there's like, uh, people bring up stories I've written. This has been happening to me since I, since I broke my femur. People were like, man, remember that story you wrote about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I don't. Was it good? Um, was that? Yeah. Was yeah. It good? Exactly. Like, yeah. Was it good? Did you like it? Okay, cool. And then, you know, and then I go back to my computer and kind of like search through my old documents because I save all that stuff, and then I find it, and then, and then it kind of refreshes my memory and stuff. But to be honest with you, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what my favorites were, but I, I do know that I always like. Um, I'm a bit of a contrarian um, in that, like one of my idols growing up was George Carlin, and yes. I always loved how George Carlin could take the opposite point of view, like 99% of the world would have point of view A. Mm -hmm. And he could take point of view B and make it make more sense than point of view A did, even to people who believed point of view A, right? Yeah, even like something like suicide or something like that. He was like, this should be on cable TV. And most people would say that's ridiculous, but he put it in an argument in such a way you're like, that needs to be on TV. Yeah, like one one of my favorite bits of his, um, and and it's, Still fitting, unfortunately, in our political climate today is is about voting. But he talks about how he doesn't vote. Yeah, and he says that a lot of people say, "Well, if you don't vote, you can't complain." And he says, "Well, uh, I beg to differ because your voters are the ones that are responsible for putting these assholes in office." 
And exactly. when they screw things up, it's the voters' fault. He says, when on the day that those people were put in office, you guys were all out there punching cards and doing whatever. I was at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is like uh, like so. Uh, so how how can you blame me? Yeah, he he gave the the example of uh, Jerry, the Jerry Springer show, and those are not the average Americans. Those are the upper class. The average Americans are watching that shit on TV, filling out their sample ballot. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Yeah, so, yeah. One of his one of his other quotes was like, you know, think about how how stupid the average person is, and then realize half of them are dumber than that. <laughs> exactly. That's right? very true. So, so you know, um, I've always liked that. So. And 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 I I'm the type of person who I don't just question other people and I, I people get annoyed at me because I question them so much, um, and I know that they it annoys them and I you know whatever, um, but if they if they think that's annoying they should be inside my head because in my head I'm questioning myself constantly, every mm-hmm. single thought I have is is subject to scrutiny inside my own stupid head and 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 so. Um, you know, using that sort of, you know, questioning my own thoughts and my own things. That's where I came up with, you know, uh, so let, I could tell you a story that, that puts this in perspective pretty well. Please um, do. In 2000 or 2001, I know I was working at Cycle News, but I don't remember which of those two years it was. In one of those two years, though, Noriyuki Haga is a world superbike racer for Yamaha at the time, a Japanese guy. Um, he was leading the world superbike championship and, uh, you know, Colin Edwards was in that championship and, um, you know, I mean, I think maybe Carl Fogarty or somebody like that was in it or, or Troy Bayless or somebody on Ducati's and all this stuff. Yep. And, and, uh, I think he was still in the States at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the point is, is that, um, Noriyuki Haga got busted for ephedrine in his doping test. And ended up being disqualified from an event. And the, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the points differential that he lost that day cost him the world championship. Now, my thought was always, you know, when I saw that happen, I was like, that's crazy. And now this was 2000 or 2001. It was around the same time. There was a Australian, in the Australian Olympics, in Sydney Olympics, there was a girl from Romania who won the all around gymnast title for you know for gymnastics which is like the premier title for all women in the olympics like that's the one you want right yeah she won it ended up being disqualified for the same thing for ephedra because of a cold medication that she had taken so both her and noriki haga lost massive amounts of of prestige and money and who knows what else all based off the fact that they took a cold medication which even and in the case of this girl, this Romanian girl, the International Olympic Committee actually said outright that they did not believe that it gave her any sort of an advantage, but they still had to punish her. And I'm like, well, those two sentences to me don't make sense. Yeah, that's if you don't believe she got an advantage, then you don't have to punish her. Like, why would you have to punish her? <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. And yeah. so the same, I had the same sort of point of view on Noriyuki Haga, and, and at the time. The guy running World Superbike as like the the head official or whatever was a man named Steve Whitelock, who yes, eventually became the guy at the AMA Motocross and Supercross racing stuff. Starting and caused all kinds of his own problems. Yeah, caused all all kinds of problems there, um, with the fuel testing and all this other stuff. Right. Um, so so 
it was back then that I had this realization that like, wait a minute, like what's going on? Like this seems wrong to me. You know, it's one thing to punish somebody who's cheating. It's another thing to punish somebody like they're cheating when they're not cheating, you know? And so, um, fast forward to whatever year it was and, you know, I'm, I'm fuzzy on it, but that Feld Entertainment had a press conference when they were going to have all the drug testing stuff start in Supercross. And they, they had, you know, WADA was there, a representative from WADA and a representative from the FAM. I think it was Wolfgang's Reb was there. And, um, and so they had this thing and they wanted all the media to come and listen to what they had to say and ask questions and blah, blah, blah. And being the contrarian, um, and having this sort of thought about like the, how unfair this testing process had been in the past, they went through their whole spiel about, you know, all these things that they're going to be testing for. And I was the first one to raise my hand and I, and I said, okay, um, I understand the desire to want to do this. I said, but why is it that we can't just test for the things that we know for sure help motocrossers and supercrossers? Cause I, I said, I don't see why we would be testing for things that help power lifters or testing for things that help gymnasts or whatever, or sprinters, right? I'm like, this is, this is a different sport, and the, you know, the substances they take are going to be very specific to the sport. And yeah. I said, and if they're taking something that doesn't help them as a racer, then, and they get busted for that, I said, I don't understand the value in doing it. Like, that doesn't help the sport. And uh, the guy from WADA, they all kind of looked around at each other to see who was going to answer the question. Um. You know, so I asked them, like, why we couldn't do that? Why we couldn't just do the this, this specific things? And, and they all looked around at each other, and then um, the guy from WADA stepped up, and if I remember correctly, he had kind of a French accent, like a pretty heavy French accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to try and do a French accent, because I, I, I would suck at it. But, you, you know, he basically, what he basically said was, he said, we're not that worried about that because all of our testing has proven over time that it always stands up in court. And I was like, that's not even close to what I'm asking you because yeah, exactly. this isn't about whether it would legally work. It's about whether it's smart to do in the first place. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Like, so it doesn't I, make any sense for uh, a, 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 a motocross racer take HGH and get all kinds of jacked because that just means he's gonna he's gonna be heavy, he's gonna be slow, he's gonna have shitty flexibility, and he's gonna arm his arms gonna pump up like no tomorrow. Yeah, he might have. Yeah, he might get arm pump, whatever. Yeah, and and it creates a paranoia also, you know, because guys don't know what it is that, that they're really taking. I mean, these guys are, you know, not these guys are smart. The, a lot of the racers are very smart people, but they're not very well educated people. For the most part, they're homeschooled and stuff, and they they don't know what what's in. Like they don't know how to read a label and know what dihydra blah 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 is. You know, they don't. They have no idea how to you know what that is. You know, they don't. And to think that they that that they should know that, I, I think is kind of foolish. But um, you know, so I had said from the start, and I had actually you know I, I had written a column about it. Um, at Racer X and, and got sort of yelled at for it. Um, and I don't remember if it even ran. But the the point is is that I, I had always had the feeling that what was going to end up happening is somebody was going to get busted for something that's not cheating and then that they would end up, like it would end up tarnishing somebody's career and that the cheaters, if there are any, won't get caught because they, they don't get caught. They typically... I mean, Lance Armstrong never popped on an actual test during his racing career. Like he, he passed every single one of them, you know, one way or the other. So, um, you know, like, and it, it's pretty clear that he was cheating the whole time. 
And and um, yeah, you know, so that was always that was always my take from the start was that that was what was going to happen, and then and then it did, you know, and and uh, finally it did. But you know, people you would always say that I was being paranoid or whatever, and and then now you look at it and you're like, well, you know, James should have turned in paperwork and all that stuff, you know. But I think he had legitimate concerns not to, um, because I think that things such as ADHD depression, other sorts of mental disorders, if you want to call them that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they have a negative stigma attached to them. And I think when you're signing millions of dollars worth of contracts to make people aware of the fact that you might be mentally deficient is probably not something you want to do necessarily. Yeah, because like that might devalue you as an athlete. They're less likely to yeah. give you that extra bonus if you know like yeah, this guy. Or, or, or hire you at all, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, you know, like, I think that there was, there was, you know, logical reasons why he wouldn't have. Now, you, obviously that was the wrong move in hindsight, but, but, you know, if you put yourself in his shoes, you can understand why, why he would do that. He had a legitimate prescription for Adderall for his ADHD. It was a legitimate prescription from a legitimate psychiatrist. He, you know, there was nothing shady about it. He wasn't trying to, to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. He was just treating a condition that he's always had. And that he never knew that he could treat, you know? And so, you know, and so now we're punishing this guy, right? Yeah. And, and, and why? And keeping one of the most dynamic player riders in the sport off the sideline or on the sidelines yeah. uh, during a not particularly, uh, well, at this point, not a particularly exciting series. Well, as much as I, and I do like James and I, I genuinely like James, but, you know, and and this sounds kind of like addicting to say, but chances are he'd have missed a few races anyway. You know, like he, oh, yeah. he, that's his track record. You know, he, better he chances would, than not, other than that pro- perfect season. Yeah, it happens. You know, right? So, you know, so I'm not saying that he would have won the title or he would have beaten Dungey. Dungey is doing re- like he's amazing right now, and I'm not yeah. sure anybody'd be beating him right now. Um, I don't, you know, if Villapoto was here, I'm not sure he'd be beating Dungey right now. Dungey looks better than he's ever looked in in his entire life. Um, he looks confident. He he like he honestly well, he looks happy that Ryan's not around. And if that's it doesn't sound like it yeah, but that's, mean yeah, or... but that but I don't think that's the case. What what it is? I mean, he, you know, I think Ryan Villapoto was a was a constant frustration um, for for Ryan Dungey. Ryan Dungey, um, but Dungey would never not try to like. When somebody's defeated mentally, when they're defeated mentally in, in any sport, but, you know, in motocross specifically, when they're defeated mentally, they don't really try to beat that person. You know, that that's what happens. You end up just kind of letting that person beat you because you don't yeah. think that you can. Dungey never got there with Ryan Villapoto ever. Ryan Villapoto just kept beating him. But Dungey never, ever, ever was okay with it. Like, that was never, you know, so, you know, what what it is is this year his bike is new and yep. they found they found some stuff in the chassis and whatnot last year and the year before he was always cha- like I can't think of a single time that I went to the pits after practice that they weren't changing something right exactly now they don't change they they hardly change anything at all because they don't need to and so that's that's the difference I think more than anything um, it's the uh, the, you know, the, the bike has him comfortable and that makes him confident. And then, you know, with Alden Baker, 
I think that there's a there's you know most of what a trainer brings to the table in my opinion is is about mental anyway it, even though they're training you physically it's about a mental game because you if you believe you've done everything right and you've done all the things that you need to do um prior to this race that's a then that's a confidence you know that that's you know that you have that you've done what you need to do to be at the top level so you know that you're not at a disadvantage to anybody out there yeah. so that is that's the bottom line to having an Alden Baker in your corner and i think that that's showing through too is that it's just you know there's an ease about Ryan Dungey right now because his bike's exactly like he wants it and he knows he's got his work done just right during the week and i mean Alden um the first thing Alden Baker did was look at his training regimen and make him train less. You know, so there was that too. Dungey was probably overtraining uh, previously. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things. So, you know, all that being said, I think Dungey probably would still be winning the title if James was out there. He'd probably still be winning the title if Villapoto was out there. Um, but Based on consistency, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and, but, but, um, I mean, I can't say that with all confidence, right? But, you know, it, mm-hmm. I, I would bet that that's probably true. So, yeah, anyway, the, but to have James on the sideline, to get back to that, yeah. is kind of a travesty. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, the guy, the guy, like, consistently, whether he's winning or not winning, he's doing something that makes him worth being out there. There's always a section that he figures out. Like he raises the level for everybody just to be out there. And, and he's just sitting on the sidelines twiddling his thumbs because some jackass wants to make a point, you know, it's wrong. I totally agree. And you know what? Like, yeah, like the length of the, of the suspension is ridiculous. And the fact that like, and I, I actually, I was a little bit disappointed that it turned out to be Adderall for one and then B how they've made it such a, like, made an example out of it. Like, I was actually really hoping that, like, if we were to find something, like, I'd always hope that we don't find anything because I'd like to think that we have a clean sport. But if we do find something, that we would find something over-the-top serious, this deserves yeah. a slap, uh, like, a, a big-time, like, punishment. Not something like Adderall, which, like, it had a, it, he had the prescription. It was, it was for uh, a medical use. For the most part, from what I understand, it was for him to deal with a lot of uh, post-concussion system, symptoms that he's had. So that, that comes into it. Like, you almost kind of feel bad for the guy that this sport has really done that to him over the years. And his well, well, I don't know the if that's accurate. It, but his, the way well, he no, rides no, no, is done. Hold on. The, the, the post, the, I've looked into this because I've had quite a few concussions myself. And as far as I've ever found, there's no studies that actually say that um, post-concussive syndrome um, gives you ADD or even ADD-like symptoms. Um, Post-concussive syndrome will give you symptoms that are similar to Alzheimer's disease, but you don't give somebody Adderall who has Alzheimer's. Um, It doesn't help them. So, uh, so, you know, I I don't think it's post-concussive syndrome post-concussive syndrome, I think he has always had ADD and it just so happens that he's finally get. So, so this is how this works. Okay. When I got diagnosed, I didn't even believe that ADD was a thing. I thought it was a bullshit diagnosis that people give to kids who are hyper hyperactive and you know, whatever. And I didn't think it was like a real problem. You know, I, I, I was very skeptical. Um, but I was having trouble at the time getting my work done and stuff like that. And, 
Um, so, and I was, you know, I was causing problems in my marriage and all kinds of stuff. So my mom ended up recommending I go to see this guy that she had seen before. And he diagnosed me in 15 minutes and, uh, started telling me things about my life that I didn't like that. I, I, I didn't tell him and my mom didn't tell him. So I had no idea how he knew it, but he knew it because he had diagnosed me as ADHD. So the point is, is he had told me like, you know, were you the type of person that would, uh, you know, disrupt class? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was voted class clown in high school. Right. I was like, Oh, okay. And he goes, uh, have you seeked out adrenaline activities? I'm like, I was a motocross racer. And he's like, uh, huh. Right. And so, so what he ended up explaining to me, and this is, this is what I'm, this is where I'm, I'm getting to with this thing about James is that, um, when you have ADHD, uh, basically the reason people seek out adrenaline activities is because adrenaline is an upper, right? And so an upper like that, you know, something that, that brings you up, that thing, that makes your brain work better, which is why people with ADHD often will, you know, not start a, a project or something until the day before it's due. Because it's not so then that their adrenaline kicks in and tells them, man, you really have to do this now or it's not getting done. And then you're like, oh, shit. So then you get it done. But yeah. up till then, you can't possibly do it. There's no... <laughs> you, you can't bring yourself to make it happen. Yeah, you just can't. So, um, so adrenaline makes your brain work better. The reason why Adderall and other ADHD medications are a type of amphetamine is because that's also an upper. The difference is, is that it's a controlled level dose throughout a day. So it allows your brain to work normal you know, like what would be normal for somebody who's not on, who doesn't have ADHD. It allows your brain to work like that. Now, James Stewart, when, when you're racing and you're moving up through the ranks and all these new tracks and new things and you move into the pros and you're racing there, you're going to have a lot of adrenaline every time you line up. So your brain's going to work pretty fine. But over the course of time, when you've been doing it for 10 years, 12 years, your brain like you just don't get the adrenaline you used to get. So because you don't have the, I mean, the first time you jump a triple on a supercross track is going to be pretty damn exciting. Right. But the 200th time or the 2000th time or the 20,000th time you jumped a triple. eh? Yeah. It's just, so, so that's, that's what it is. I think that James always had ADHD. It's just that, um, for the longest time, he just didn't know it because it was masked. By by his concussion, you know, by his adrenaline when he was at the races and stuff, and it just worked, you know, for a long time, and it took a while before it came around that that it didn't work anymore, and and so he needed to, you know, take a pill. And so saying all that, you know, I I am honestly of the opinion that if I had to guess, eighty ninety percent of motocrossers have ADHD. I would totally agree. Uh, as I, uh, uh, I was probably, you know, I was going to save this uh, comment for after we uh, ended the the interview. But um, today, I had uh, a meeting with uh, Service Canada to talk about getting funding for getting retrained, and I knew about uh-huh. that uh, a month ago that the meeting was going to happen. 
where I had to collect right. uh, all of my the like the the job uh, applications uh-huh. I've sent out, all of the uh, jobs that were possible for anyone that would get the training that I'm looking for, as well as print off all of the uh, my course outlines that I'd be looking into and the stuff that, and, and put it all into a package. That meeting was at two o'clock. I started that right. pr- preparation at noon today. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So that that's my point. So, so my you know I think that people have talked about post post concussive syndrome with James because of, he has crashed quite a bit and all that stuff. But as far as I know, post concussive syndrome doesn't even start to show symptoms until forties and fifties. You know, he, he hasn't had more concussions than an NFL player or whatever. Yeah. And those guys, they, it happens in their forties and fifties. So. Um, you know, I, I don't think that that's, that's necessarily the case. I think that he just always had ADHD, and over the course of time, the adrenaline stopped working. And I think more than anything, that can probably explain a lot of his crashes later in his career, you know, that happened before he started taking the meds, you know? Like, I, I think it was probably just because he was losing concentration, purely because he, you know, has ADHD, and he'd be like, "Oh, look, a bird!" Oh, and then you know, next thing you know, he's on his head. So yeah, squirrel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I was going to go with this afterwards, but like, I, I, like, we've already had an hour and six minutes, and we haven't even touched on the fact that uh, you're also a shutterbug. Uh, do you have some time to talk about your photography a little bit? Or yeah, should, uh, We save that for uh, another podcast. No, no, we could do that real quick. Oh, cool, man. Well, uh, okay, so how did you end up picking up a, uh, uh, basically taking on, well, you would mentioned earlier, is basically to get your own shots for headshots and stuff like that, but uh, taking on a challenge like that and then excelling at it uh, is, is a whole other a whole other deal. Um, how did you come up with the uh, your abilities uh, with the, the camera? And what, what was well, your first camera that you started shooting with? Um, I bought a Nikon D1X from Brian J. Nelson in 2004 that he was switching to Canon and he's a rotary shooter and shoots a lot of like press intros for some of the, you know, a lot of manufacturers and stuff like that in America here. Um, he was selling off all his Nikon stuff to buy Canon. Um, so I bought his D1X and a 24 to 70 lens and a, um, and a, let's see, a, and a flash, I think. So I just started with that because I wanted to have, uh, like, I just wanted to be able to take shots of people to use in the stories I was writing and stuff when I was at Cycle News. And I spent my own money to buy it. And, you know, later that year, that was in, like, probably January of 2004. Later that year, just after the Indy Supercross, actually, I got fired from Cycle News and then um, struck out on my own as a photographer and journalist that could cover the races and stuff. And at the time, honestly, I was pretty naive and, and, uh, you know, I knew that I could write, but I mean, I'd look at my photos and be like, yeah, that's fine. You know, that's good. I look at my photos that I took back then now and I'm just like, woof, like they're just terrible. They, they're really, really bad. Like really pretty incredibly bad. And, <laughs> and, it, and it's one of those things that, uh, you know, but I loved it from the start. Like the first time I took a photo and, and, you know, with digital, um, I, I never shot film. So with digital and, and I never had a lesson. So you take a photo and you see it on the back of the camera and you know, pretty much, you know, are you overexposed or underexposed and whatever. And so over the course of time, I just taught myself how to do it. And I, I had input from guys like Steve Diverson, who's guidey, but he's, he's a great friend of mine. And, you know, he taught me some things early on and, 
um, Steve Brune. Also, there's like a whole a whole bunch of Steves. We just all hung out, and uh, Steve Brune taught me a shit ton. And um, you know, you learned anything from Steve Mathis? Uh, no, no comments. I think I learned about bear claws. I learned about bear claws, and I learned about poutine from Steve Mathis. Uh, yes. but that's pretty much the limit pretty much the limit of, of what I've learned from Steve Mathis. Yeah. Although, um, you know, I, I've also learned to love, uh, uh, you know, whatever Basset House. I've learned yes. to love Basset House from Steve, Steve Mathis. But, so, um, but yeah, so I just started uh, shooting and, and just, you know, really loved it. I just liked it, you know, and uh, it was just a new, fresh challenge and something that I like to do. And then over time, you know, there was a period of time when I, I kind of fell into a lull because it was, you know, you're shooting 30 of 30 races a year and, you know, plus practice days and all kinds of other shit. And it just gets to be a little much and, you know, it's easy to get kind of burnt out. But, uh, over the course of time, I figured out that the best way for me to keep from getting burnt out was to always be trying new things. So that's pretty much what I do now is I, every time I go to a track to shoot, there's something different I'm going to try that I haven't tried before. Um, just because I want to know what I can do and what I can't do. And so now I've been doing it for, you know, 11 years and I still do that at every event. Like, you know, I'll try a, a new little gadget or I'll try a, a new way of setting up the camera. I'll try a different shutter speed or, you know, there's always something, there's always something to, to sort of jack with and see what it does and see what you can do with it. And, and then when you figure out, you know, you'll either figure out that it doesn't work and then you just kind of move on or you figure out that it's cool for something, like that it does something cool. And then you add that to your repertoire and, and that becomes something that you can do, you know. And, and uh, that's 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 why I love photography is because it's a there's just always something new, always something new. And, and it, even if it's just a matter of like if your comfort zone and panning shots is a you know, without a flash at a national is like a two fiftieth of a second. See if you can get down to like a one one sixtieth of a second and keep them sharp. You know, because it'll be more dramatic and whatever. Um, maybe that'll be awesome. Maybe it won't. Maybe you can't do that. Maybe you're not good enough. Maybe you're not steady enough. You know, but you know, as one example, I shot a, a NASCAR race, um, a truck race where Ricky Carmichael was racing the Texas Motor Speedway a bunch of years ago and. One of the photographers there, you know, didn't, it was me and Guyberson both shooting there, just basically trying to get pictures of Ricky because it was a motocross connection to it. And, um, one of the, uh, photographers who's like a regular NASCAR, you know, comes up and he's like in the press area, he's like, Hey, you guys ever shot this before? And it was a night race, by the way, right? He's like, you ever shot this before? I'm like, no. Good luck. Like, that's what he did. He was a total dick. Good luck. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, but you know, I didn't tell him that I shot Supercross, which is dimly lit and difficult. You know, so yeah, it's own, like, it's know, own how, uh, challenges. Yeah, and so I'm like, you know, how hard could it be? Well, during that race, I ended up. I mean, I sh because I had a million laps with Ricky coming by in different spots. You know, it's like a gazillion laps, and I'm only really worried about shooting him anyway, but. So I was messing with all kinds of stuff, you know, moving shutter speeds around. And, you know, I got down to such a low shutter speed. I don't remember what the number was, but I got down to such a low sh shutter speed at one point that 
his door was sharp, but both fenders were blurry because they were bouncing up and down. Like the front and rear fender of the car were both way too blurry because because of the bumps on the track. Hmm. So they were moving up and down, and the door on the side stayed perfectly still. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm sitting there afterward, and that same photographer goes by. He's like, how'd you do? And I happened to be on one of those, like, slow panning shots, and I showed it to him. He's like, oh, okay. Like, and I was like, yeah, dick. <laughs> Eat that. <laughs> so, you know, so that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, is it's, um, and that's the challenge of it, and that's what's fun. Is like, if you go out there and you, you make sure you get out of your comfort zone every time you shoot and you do something different, and you try try something different. It's not always going to work out, but shit, we don't use film anymore. It's not like you're going to waste film. So just shoot, and and then if you don't like it, then then don't do that. Next Dump time. them, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, that's cool. So you you've had some cover shots. You've you've been on uh, like obviously you've most likely done uh, like the uh, dirt bike rider. You've gotten some uh, some cover shots, I'm sure, as well as uh, some racer X cover shots. You said the. Uh, uh, Christoph Purcell from uh, Daytona 09? It might have been 09. Yeah, I, it was 09, 09 or 10. 10. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was one of those two. And then, um, yeah, that was the only one I got with Racer X. And then, um, yeah, I've had a few with, with Dirt Bike Rider in England and Cycle News and uh, a few with Dirt Rider here in America and stuff like we that. We actually get that magazine up here in Canada. Dirt Bike Rider is actually probably one of the more prevalent ones uh, on the newsstands locally. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, because you guys are still kind of part of the Commonwealth, huh? like you, uh, you, you have the queen on your money and shit. Yes, sir. And all of our laws have to be uh, approved by the Governor General, who is the um, basically the representation of the queen. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really terrible. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, lots. I mean, but but truth, truth be told, I think that Canada has a whole lot going for it that we don't. But I still still wouldn't want to be answering to some monarch across an ocean. No, <laughs> no, it's a bit of an old <laughs> adage, and uh, yeah, um, it's, it's very uh, we're we're a little different up here, and because of that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, um, very very much Americanized for for our cultures and stuff like that. Although we have figured out this whole cheese and gravy and fries thing. Yeah, that, and you have healthcare that actually works and whatnot, that should be nice. And you don't I have, have to, to wait a year to get my shoulder fixed, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could have paid for it like you would have here, and then it yeah. would have been oh, quicker, yeah. Yeah. right? So, oh, yeah. You know. uh, they fixed it up for free. I just missed two two racing seasons because of it. So, but, okay. so you like wait, you wait a year to get your shoulder fixed, or you pay $100,000. Yes, sir. Because that's, yeah. that's what it would cost here, so, you know, give and take. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, no, for sure, man. Well, Steve Cox, uh, it's been uh, an hour and fifteen minutes of absolute gold, and uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, you're well in knowledge, and uh, though you don't remember too much of your articles from the from yesteryear, uh, it's been yeah. a blast just to uh, pick your brain a little bit. Uh, because, uh, as you said, you've got extensive knowledge of the sport, and uh, can't thank you enough for giving me some time tonight. Yeah, no problem, man. I, I like I like my Canucks. You like uh, for sure. I appreciate that, man. Uh, uh, I guess with no Toronto Supercross, you don't uh, get to uh, bring the passport out uh, for the Supercross season. Yeah, I don't get to go hang out and get hammered with your strong beer at the Loose Moose. That's right. Oh man, American beer is like water. It's water. Uh, it's terrible. It's, it's terrible. Like... The worst. One of the worst hangovers I ever had though was after the Loose Moose. Man, holy moly. 
No kidding. Well, us, us Canadians, we're pretty hardy. We'll, uh, we'll go toe-to-toe with you, uh, no matter uh, how much you like to uh, tip them back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right on. Cool, dude. Well, you have yourself a great night. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.